You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray you'll teach us wondrous things, O Father, from this reading of your word. O Father, teach us and take us into the character and person of Christ Jesus, that we would see him in his majesty and splendor, that we would see him, uh, O Lord, and uh, that we would fall down and worship. Father, we pray that as we look at this text and as we study this text, O Father, fill our hearts, O Lord, that they may respond with doxology, that we may respond with adoration and worship, and that we may align our hearts and our lives with every word that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Well, it feels like Easter time now, doesn't it, reading this text? And I, I'll preface my comments here on this text by saying we are, we are allowed to do this on other days than Palm Sunday, right? Uh, although I don't think we ever do. Uh, I know I have, I don't think I've ever preached on this text on any other Sunday than, uh, than what the church has historically called Palm Sunday. And I even as, uh, I thought about, I've been thinking about this text for quite some time because I knew it would be coming eventually. And I thought, because we're so familiar with it, maybe we'll just skip over it because, um, I, I, I preach on, uh, whether it be John or, uh, or Matthew or Luke or Mark, I preach on this event once a year. Uh, we don't follow a, a church calendar per se, but we do set aside a Sunday uh, a year uh, for this particular event, uh, for the, uh, the Easter event, if you will, uh, for uh, the uh, incarnation of Christ. So in that sense, I, I guess we are following a little bit of a church calendar. Uh, but all of that having been said, uh, this event um, is probably familiar uh, to most of us this morning. And uh, what I would like to do now is just kind of quickly go over it. Um, we'll just go down through the verses and explain the event and put it fresh in our minds. And then from there, um, we'll begin to uh, uh, look at especially how the character of Jesus is brought out uh, in this event. So... When we look at verse 9, there we see that the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus 
was there. And uh, this will kind of turn our minds back to verse 55 of chapter 11, uh, verses 55 and 56. There we're told the Passover of Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And if you recall last week, I made a comment about that, actually an application about that, uh, that here they are, they're preparing themselves uh, for this Passover feast. And um, the application was uh, just as they prepared themselves for the uh, Old Testament Passover, uh, we prepare ourselves for the New Testament Passover, don't we? Or uh, what some have called the Gospel Passover, uh, which is the Lord's Supper. So this idea of preparing yourself, and, and I don't think we want to limit it just to the sacraments either. Uh, we want to uh, always be in a posture of preparing our hearts for worship. Time and time again, I'd say probably 90% of the time, when folks don't make it to church on Sunday, it's because of a lack of preparation. I mean, not excluding if you're sick, not excluding if you're, if you're at work, uh, but it's a lack of preparation. Um, I think probably 90% of the time when people say, man, I meant to be there and I missed, I'm sorry. Uh, but then they'll, they'll mention something that happened on Saturday. Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a lack of preparation. Um, if Monday is the start of your week, I, you know, we, we prepare for it. You know, if, we're, if, if our shift starts at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday, we, uh, we prepare for that. Um, but the preparation for Sunday morning needs to go much deeper than simply being here, but preparing our hearts to be here. And it should even go further than that. But uh, reflective prayer for one another. Uh, Lord, don't just prepare my heart to be here. Uh, prepare the hearts of everyone to be here. Uh, prepare the hearts of this family uh, to be here so that as we come here, uh, we may experience your presence and we may experience the good things uh, from you. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, uh, so that's the application there. But for our purposes this morning, you look at verse 56, chapter 11, verse 66. They're looking for Jesus. They're saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will come uh, to the feast at all. And, and um, I, I put three different constructions on that, and I think it's important that we do. You know, the context suggests and is highly suggested that there probably were uh, many of the sinister sort here uh, that uh, perhaps are aiding and abetting uh, the Pharisees in the arrest of, of Jesus. Uh, he has his enemies, for sure. Uh, but there were probably others, as I said last week, who were just simply controversialists. Why is there always controversy and drama on TV? Because fallen sinners have a, a thirst and a hunger for that stuff. That's why. Uh, it improves ratings. Uh, that's why you have all these talking heads always talking the way they're talking. We need to be mindful of that. Uh, that uh, it, it can be cancerous to us to, suscept our, to, to make ourselves susceptible to that uh, all the time. So there were probably controversialists there. But I would submit there were others there probably legitimately seeking Jesus. They heard about uh, his uh, raising of Lazarus, and they heard about the wonderful things that he'd been doing, and they wanted to set eyes on him, and they wanted to set eyes on Lazarus. And here we, we see when we go to John chapter 12, verse 9 and uh, uh, 11, and even uh, uh, verse 18, I think uh, we see the large crowd, verse 9, of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, uh, whom he had raised from the dead. Um, 
verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see that phrase, believing in Jesus. Now, we have come to understand when we're studying John's gospel that every time we come across the word belief or believing, it's not always expressive of the real deal, is it? It's not always expressive of true saving faith. But as Leon Morris points out in this verse, uh, it seems that John is actually expressing the real deal here in verse 11. They truly are defecting uh, from uh, Orthodox Judaism to uh, uh, believing in Christ Jesus, becoming disciples uh, of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, because of this, if you look at verse 10, the chief priests now are adding to uh, their list of things. They're not only planning to put um, Jesus to death, now they're planning also to put Lazarus uh, to death because he is attracting a crowd of his own. And um, uh, more about that in a few moments, but if you look down to verse 12, we're told the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Verse, 12, or verse 13, they took branches of palm trees. This is where Palm Sunday gets the palm part. Uh, it's also in John's Gospel where Palm Sunday gets the Sunday part. So it gets its name from uh, John's Gospel. I don't want to sidetrack on all that right now, but notice the palm trees, um, uh, something um, we'll say a little bit more about that. But here they're, they're bringing these palm branches, if you will, and they're going out to meet Jesus. And the idea is there's, there's a crowd with Jesus coming from Bethany, and he's coming down the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. And word gets out that Jesus is coming, and a large crowd from Jerusalem uh, comes out. And John, really, in his take of this, and all four gospel writers give an account of this, but John's the only one that looks at it from the perspective of Jerusalem, if you will, going out onto the hill. The other gospel writers are with Jesus following him down the hill, whereas John is seeing everybody come up uh, to meet Jesus. Now, this crowd comes up and meets the crowd that's with Jesus. They converge, and now you have this massive uh, procession, if you will, uh, going down the Mount of Olives, and they begin to chant, Hosanna, which means save, we pray, or save us now. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They would have all memorized those words from singing from Psalm 118, as they had done many times. Those psalms were sung at the time of the Passover celebration. So they break out into singing these, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're calling him king. They're calling Jesus king. Then they find, Jesus finds a young donkey, sits on it, just as it is written. Hold on to that. And then verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, verse 16 is instructive, and it should give us comfort. His disciples did not understand all this. Sometimes we don't either, right? <laughs> Sometimes people say, I'd read my Bible if I could understand it, but I read my Bible and I don't understand it. And sometimes they're really shocked when I tell them, listen, I don't always understand it either. Like, do you think that I just opened it up and I understand everything? They say, well, oh, my goodness, no. There are many things in it that I haven't. I, I, I don't understand. No, no human being understands every verse of God's Word. Uh, no human being is going to master God's Word. And here we see the disciples who were in the school of, with Christ. They were in seminary with Christ for three years. He was their professor. Could they have a better professor? 
Could they have a professor who was more qualified? Could they have a better teacher? The answer is no. But as these things are happening, they did not understand them at first. But when Jesus was glorified, verse 16, they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. We're going to see more about that as we begin to study chapters 14, 15, and 16. I'll save that for then. But in verse 17, the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. How could they not? We saw with our own eyes. Here everybody was crying and everybody was mourning. And then Jesus showed up and he, he asked for the stone to be removed. And then he or gave the order, Lazarus, come out. And out he comes. And his, if you saw that, if you were a witness to that, it's something you would never be able to, to forget, I don't think, would you? I don't think. Um, they continue to bear witness about it. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And the Pharisees, they're uh, despondently saying, see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, as we take this familiar event, the text itself might not be familiar. We don't, every, uh, once a year on Palm Sunday, we we don't always look at John's gospel. We may look at Matthew. We may look at Luke. Probably Matthew and Luke might even be the more popular of the two for whatever reason. Uh, but um, uh, here we're familiar with the event itself. And uh, as we think about the character of Jesus, Jesus does something that is, especially if you're reading Mark's gospel, it is quite um, uncharacteristic of Jesus because in Mark's gospel, we especially have what we call the messianic secret. Does, anybody refer, does that mean anything to anybody? The messianic secret, where Jesus will do this healing and he'll tell everybody, listen, don't tell nobody. I don't want you to tell nobody. Now, of course, what'd they go do? They went and blabbed it everywhere. When we're supposed to tell somebody something, we don't. When we're told not to tell somebody, we can't, if we're told not to do it, we can't hardly stand it, can we? It's how rebellious we are. It's, uh, it's part of our, our makeup. They run around and they tell everybody, which makes life really hard and difficult uh, for Jesus. Um, but what's really uncharacteristic for Jesus is they are calling him. They are chanting loud, King of Israel. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them, does he? In fact, uh, his enemies call on him uh, to rebuke them. And how does he respond? If you're familiar with, with Luke's gospel, he refuses and he says, listen, if they don't cry out, even the very stones are going to cry out. Uh, this, is all part of the, this is all part of the plan here. Uh, so here Jesus is doing something that, that so far has been kind of uncharacteristic of him. Here he's coming in with this, with this, this magnificent fanfare. They're calling out... Um, uh, if you will, uh, waving these palm branches. Now, what's the significance of the palm branch? Well, the palm branch, the significance of this palm branch is that it was a, a symbol of nationalist, uh, nationalism, if you will. It was a nationalistic uh, symbol. Um, the uh, uh, Jews had palm branches minted on their coins, scholars tell us. And after the Romans conquered the Jews and sacked the temple, then the Romans minted palm branches on their coins. So it wasn't just a nationalistic symbol, but it was also a symbol of victory. So here you have this nationalistic uh, victory, uh, if you will, uh, with the waving of the palm branches 
And the issue here is Jesus is manifesting himself. He is revealing himself as a king, but he's not the king they're looking for, not the kind of king they're looking for. With the palm branches and the things that they're saying, uh, what, are, what are they looking for? They're looking for a political liberator, one who will uh, liberate them from Rome. And it's a real superficial view of the human condition to think that our greatest problem is politics. But it's as common as the cold. You know, every time I pray for some of these horrific agendas that are trying to be passed right now, I always am mindful I'm running the risk of sounding like I'm on the stump. That is deplorable. To, it's deplorable to me to turn a pulpit into a stump for politics. That's deplorable. Uh, my assignment is the gospel. Uh, and one of the great problems that the, the evangelical church has, has really fallen into is getting these mixed up. Um, I, I could share a name with you that some of us will be familiar with who probably haven't heard in a long, long time. When was the last time you heard the name D. James Kennedy? I was really, really um, um, influenced by uh, Dr. Kennedy. Uh, I, I probably, I, I've been wrestling, look, thinking about using him as an illustration. Um, I do this kindly, and I do this with uh, great respect. Uh, I probably should have, there's, I, in my office, I have a um, biography of D. James Kennedy, and I, I can remember reading it, and I remember reading the foundation of Coral Ridge Ministry. Someone had started to plant the church. They had it up to maybe 40 people or 50 people, and then um, Dr. Kennedy was brought in to kind of take over and initially, it went from, I think, 47 to 17 or something like that. And he was about ready to give up. Um, but what was going on is he was preaching the gospel. And many of us will be aware of, like, evangelism explosion. Um, DJ Kennedy was behind that. And uh, evangelism explosion, there's people that are on board with it. There's people that aren't. I don't want to get into that this morning, but... Uh, evangelism explosion was imported all over the world. I forget how many languages it ended up going into. And there was this massive, massive, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, movement. I don't like the word movement, but effort uh, to knock on doors and to go up to people and say, listen, you know, if the EE question is you sometimes hear it said, uh, you know, if you were to die today and you were to, uh, be brought before the Lord, and he was to say, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And it's a diagnostic question. There was really a very good diagnostic question for that period of time. Probably still is a very good diagnostic question. Um, D. James Kennedy was really on about the gospel, centered on the gospel. But I, I, And this is just my opinion, but I think things went wrong. I think things went sideways when the focus of Coral Ridge Ministries began to turn towards reclaiming America for Christ, reclaiming America. And I don't think that was something that was um, really meant uh, to be, and I think in the minds of many, they probably still were focused on the gospel. But it seemed like the books that were coming out for a while, and the emphasis that was coming out for a while, um, was on politics. And we've seen that in so many areas. Some of the leading uh, evangelical denominations are in all kind of trouble because they've shifted from the gospel to political activism. That's, that's dropping the ball. Uh, here we get a grand lesson in that right now. What is the emphasis here? It's on politics. 
You know, you can almost hear the talking heads talking. Listen, what we really need here is we need liberation from Rome. And you can hear them all getting their buddies on and having their buddies write books. And every time a new book comes out, there they are on TV. You can see the whole thing. It's nothing new, is it? There's nothing new about it at all. Um, well, let's take a close look here. What is Jesus doing? Well, here he comes and he's revealing himself as a king. Is the king coming? Absolutely the king coming. He is coming, but he is not the king that they're looking for. What kind of king is he then? Well, he finds a young donkey, which is significant in itself. Kings didn't ride donkeys in times of war. They, wore, they rode horses. They rode what's known as the war horse. Uh, in this case, it would have been some type of very muscular stallion. Uh, that Jesus would have been on. It would have been a fast, muscular, strong, beautiful horse. Uh, we find him pictured on such in the book of Revelation. Uh, but here we see him on a donkey, just as is written. And uh, here we have a, a, a quotation that is strongly uh, from uh, Zechariah, which is why we read Zechariah. And I invite you to turn back to Zechariah's prophecy there. Uh, in Zechariah 9, verse 9, you'll recognize some of the words from our text. Uh, I, I found that it, it made for a, a great call to worship with its, with its rejoice. You know, if you look at the context of it, if you, you look back to Zechariah 9, verse 1, here we have the judgment on the enemies of Israel, if you will. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, through, uh, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Here she's become very, very wealthy. Uh, the uh, people of Tyre and Sidon were sea merchants and they were uh, always dragging gold. Now, the gold of Tarshish, if you will, was probably a place in Spain. Now, they're bringing all this gold in and there they're getting very wealthy. Verse 4, but behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant of uh, uh, for our God, and it shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were people who occupied Jerusalem. And the conquest under Joshua, they were never able to remove them. It wasn't until the king of the uh, time of, of David that he goes and conquers, conquers and removes the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. And then you come to verse 9, Rejoice greatly. It's almost like Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort after all of this judgment. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter of Zion here in this text uh, is a, an affectionate phrase. It's uh, often uh, yields connotations of um, Jerusalem being in time of need, and especially in need of protection. Uh, almost like uh, the, the need of a, a young virgin daughter would need to be protected by her father. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, marvelous phrase. It's repeated, actually, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And verse 10, we don't look at very often, but verse 10 is quite instructive. Notice verse 10 and how it speaks of peace. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Ephraim is being used for Israel, the northern kingdom. In this context, Jerusalem uh, is, uh, of course, going to be referring to uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Either way, the third line, the battle bow shall be cut off. Three instruments of war, chariot, horse, and bow, all three being cut off. These are uh, words of peace. Uh, He shall speak peace to the nations. This is going to go on beyond the borders of Jerusalem here, you see. Uh, This is is pointing to the Messianic age for sure. It's going beyond the borders of Jerusalem. Speaking peace to the nation. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the whole point here is that Jesus is a king of peace. Not on a war horse. Not uh, uh, coming to remove Rome. uh, Actually coming to remove something much greater uh, than Rome. Uh, If we think that our problems can be solved politically, we're looking at our problems very superficially. In fact, I think that if we're convinced we can solve our problems politically, we don't understand our problems at all. And I think that's where a massive majority of the so-called evangelical church is at. They have no clue, not one clue, what the real problem is. Our real problem is we have to do with a holy and just God. That's our real problem. I don't care who's in the office in in Washington. He's not going to get that done. It's not going to happen. We wonder why things are such a mess when we run our theology. See, our theology matters, doesn't it? Our theology really, really matters. And what we have going on here is, you know, every generation has had this problem, and I want to demonstrate it. If you'll go to, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 8, I want to demonstrate this. Some of you will be aware of this chapter, but we could go to chapter 6 too, but let's do chapter 8 to demonstrate this. Now, this is the devil at work, and we need to be mindful of his schemes because this is one of his favorites. If you start looking at verse 8, There, God speaking through Jeremiah, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Uh, But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Verse 9, the wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken because they've rejected what? They've rejected the word of the Lord. All this so-called wisdom that you're going to hear on TV today is almost probably 100%. Wisdom coming uh, from uh, people who are rejecting the word of the Lord. It's, it's all nonsense. doesn't mean you can't find a grain of truth in it, uh, God, uh, but it would only be because of common grace that we could. Um, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? You see the consequence of rejecting the word of the Lord? If you reject the word of the Lord, then what wisdom can you expect to be in you? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, well, there's not going to be any. 
There can't be any wisdom in you. Look at the consequence. Therefore, I'll give their wives to others, their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Now look at verse 11. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. I turn this pulpit into a stump for politics, and I'm going to be healing the wounds lightly. All we need to do is get a Republican back in the Oval Office, and we're going to be good. Well, we had one in the office. We've had many Republicans in the office. We've had Democrats in the office. The country's going downhill. What happened? What's wrong? I had a conversation with a man. He actually was really an interesting guy. He's a homeless man I had this conversation with, and, and he's homeless by choice. He's homeless. It's, he, he, he prefers to be homeless. And I... He's very intelligent. I had a wonderful conversation with him, and it segued from, went from, it, it, was, it was a conversation about all the things you're not supposed to talk about in public. It was a conversation about religion and politics. And we're having this conversation, and uh, finally, um, he, you know, he's, he's, a, he's maybe of a slightly different, well, in many respects, he's a much different stripe than I am. But um, we had this conversation. I was so thankful for this conversation. And when it was almost done, we were talking about how things are going bad and how things are, this is happening and that's happening. And he's looking at it from a slightly different perspective than I'm looking at it. But just as we were about done, I said, listen, I always like to conclude these kind of conversations with these words. He goes, what? I said, Jesus is not up for re-election. And he lit up. This man lit up, and he goes, ah, you're right. He's not. I said, does that comfort you? He goes, that does comfort me. That does comfort me. And he really seemed to be comforted by that. And I got to say, given all the things that he said, he might not be all that far away from the kingdom of heaven, being that he found so much comfort from that conversation. The fact is, Jesus is king. He is king. But there's this constant message of healing people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Now, and I think the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it is probably one of the most popular uh, expressions of this peace, peace, when there's no peace. Because it assumes that you can have peace, even in the conversation of my friend. And I consider this guy my friend that I talked to uh, this past week. Uh, his belief is as long as, you're, as long as you're adhering to the three Abrahamic religions, you're good to go. That's, what, that's his position. Now, what are the three Abrahamic religions that he's making reference to? Sometimes when you hear people talk that way, they're talking about, of course, Christianity. Uh, they're talking about Judaism. And they're talking about Islam. And his, his perspective, as long as you're sincerely uh, hanging on to one of those three, uh, then you're Okay. Well, I would submit to you that's peace, peace when there's no peace. Why is that? Where's the atonement in Judaism? Where's the atonement in Islam? You see, if we don't understand what our mess is, then we're going to come to those kinds of conclusions because we want to be nice. And it's a painful thing for us to, it's a painful thing for us to try to come to uh, the conclusion that, okay, all these people who are so sincerely following their religion that they could be lost. Look how sincere they are. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've all felt the entrapment of that. I think we've all been tempted by that. I think we've all felt the magnetic pull of that. But I would submit to you that that magnetic pull is not a pull from God. That magnetic pull is a pull from the evil one pulling us in that direction. There can be no peace apart from Christ. This is one of the most politically incorrect things a person can say today, isn't it? It's what we have to say. Because there can be no peace apart from Christ. Why? Our hearts are naturally hostile to God. If you don't mind, turn to Romans 8, 7 with me. I like you turning there because you're going to remember it better if you actually physically turn there. This is a verse that you need to get in your bag of, of verses. And we need to get this one down. The Apostle Paul there, and this is just one of many places. I'm always going to Ephesians 2. You can always go to Ephesians 2. I thought, let's go somewhere else uh, th this morning. But there Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Our translations will vary slightly. If we have a King James, it'll say enmity. And in enmity, sometimes people say, what's enmity? Think of what it sounds like. It sounds like enemy, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what it is, enemy. ESV is hostile or hostility. That's because the Greek word ekthra means enmity, hostility, hostile. Is there peace between enemies? Now, these guys are enemies, but it's all okay. They're peaceful. What? If there's peace, then reconciliation has taken place, and they're no longer enemies. Maybe they're just not fighting at the moment, but don't think that's peace, because the enemy enmity can still be going on and being harbored in the heart. Right? Now, what Paul is saying here is, you know, the conditions are enmity, they're hostility. Under these conditions, there can be no peace. This is our biggest problem. Now, Jesus is going to break the hostility by taking away the sin and guilt upon the cross, opening a way for reconciliation. And without this, there is no, there's no peace. Um, one more thing about Romans 8, 7. See, it, 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 probably most of us have something like the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. Uh, literally in the Greek, it's the very way of thinking. Uh, the very way of thinking, their very way of thinking is of the flesh. It's, it's pointing to all unbelievers. You know the nice guy down the street that cut your grass when you had surgery who doesn't, um, has not surrendered his heart to the Lordship of Christ? The nice man that you're so uh, fond of and so thankful for. Listen, his heart, as nice as he is and as wonderful he is, on a human scale, his heart is at enmity with the Lord until he comes to save in faith with Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, asks this, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And its answer in part, I'm just going to give you part of the answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us. So if Jesus is a kind of king, it's not going to come in like a Charlemagne. He's not going to come in like a Napoleon or an Alexander the Great and rule us externally. He's not going to drive us um, like, um, uh, like a, a, 
uh, yeah, Charlemagne, I think, would be a classic example. You know, you will convert. <laughs> you will convert. <laughs> Here's a sword to show you, you will convert. Uh, that's not how Jesus comes down that hill. Jesus comes down that hill as a king of peace who will labor not from the outside, but he will labor from the inside. That's why legalism doesn't work. Legalism attempts to straighten us out on the outside. But Jesus does not labor from the outside. Jesus is a king who rules in our hearts. He wins our hearts by dying on the cross. And then Jesus brings the grace of God, and the grace of God miraculously works within him within everyone who believes. You know, years ago, this doesn't happen too much anymore, but years ago, especially when we first started planting this church, when we first started planting this church, there was a number of people that were kind of interested in the church, but they were more of the full gospel stripe, and they wanted to know if we spoke in tongues, and wanted to know if we do all this other stuff, and I told them, no, that's uh, no. And, and uh, the kind of comical thing is, is I, I started to come to the conclusion that they didn't really think I was a believer um, me and Tammy would talk about it a little bit, and I, I, I don't. They, they just, you know, they must not think I read my Bible or pray or anything. You know, I don't really believe because, um, you know, don't believe in all of this. Well, you know, something I do believe in miracles. I believe in the miracle that most of them would deny, and that's the miracle of a transformed heart. See, if you believe that you, in and of yourself, can choose Jesus. There's no miracle taking place when you do. I don't believe you can. And I'm going to be busy sharing the gospel tonight. If anybody wants to come with me, I'll be happy to bring you along and I can show you. I don't think you can believe by yourself. No, in fact, I don't think you're going to become a believer until the Lord actually works a miracle in your heart. Oh, I believe in miracles, and I'm staring at a whole bunch of them. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are the recipient of nothing short than a miracle. You're a miracle. You're a walking miracle. You either are or you're not in Christ yet. If you're in Christ, you're a walking miracle. And this is how Jesus brings his peace, because he sub subdues us. He subdues us. As the catechism question says, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Our hearts are touched by the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us into submission to Christ. Why do we believe the Bible to be the Bible? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that the Bible is the Word of God. You either believe it that way or you don't believe it at all. You might believe it a little bit, but when trouble comes, you're going to abandon it. Not when the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit. No, not, not, when, not when the miracle occurs. But the king of peace also subdues his enemies. I mean, all who remain in rebellion to his kingship, who are hostile to his will, hostile to his truth. Um, you know, he, here we, we've been studying John's gospel. We go back to John. Uh, we've been studying John's gospel. And what have we seen time and time again from chapter 5, verse 18, all the way forward? They've been trying to kill him, haven't they? Does Jesus have his enemies? Yes, but he subdues his enemies. In John 5, 18, they're trying to kill him. You look at 11 and verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees have given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Okay, what that's going to do is that's going to inculcate anybody who would harbor Jesus. They'd be harboring a fugitive. They'd be aiding and abetting Jesus. That would get them in trouble. 
could get them in a lot of trouble, uh, lots of lots of trouble. You look at verse 10, if you will. Um, the chief priests made plans. They added the two their plans to kill Jesus, to kill Lazarus as well. But I want you to look at verse 19. When it's all said and done at this point out there on the hill, what do they say to each other? They say, see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world's gone after him. It's easy to pass that verse up, but do you realize what's going on in that verse? As Jesus has these enemies perfectly subdued. Oh, if they could, they would kill him right there on the spot. But they can't. He's going to let them kill him in a few days. It's just a few days away. But it's only going to be when he lets them. These enemies are perfectly subdued. Satan is another enemy. He's the enemy that's ultimately behind all of his enemies. But he's defeated with his own noose on the cross. Luke 10, 18, where Jesus said, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus I saw Satan fall like lightning. You know that verse. I saw him fall like lightning. Death is another enemy. The death of John Owen, you know, as I turn to a passage, you don't need to turn to this passage. I hate to make you turn to a zillion passages, but I'm going to turn to it because I want to read it to you. But as I'm doing that, John Owen famously wrote a book and the title of the book is actually a lesson, just the title of the book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. You know, there you get a lesson from the title. I think if we were going to study that book together, we would have to start with the title. Forget starting with the first chapter. Forget starting with the introduction. Uh, this is so good, we're going to start with the title. I think the first, if I was teaching on the death of death and the death of Christ, I think I would start with the title. Now, what books are so significant that you would start with the, with the letters on the front cover. Before we've even opened the book, we could have a lesson, couldn't we? The death of death and the death of Christ. John, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 54, just listen, you don't need to turn there, just listen to these words. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, victory. Palm branches. We could wave a palm branch for that, couldn't we? Because death has been defeated. Why has death been defeated? Because it's the wages of sin, and sin has been defeated, and therefore it takes it, pulls the plug out of death, doesn't it? If our sins have been taken away, so have the wage. If the sin's been taken away, so has the wages. The wages of sin is death. Is that wonderful news? It's wonderful news. So as king of peace, he'll subdue our enemies, our own hearts, the enemies of the gospel, false teaching, death, Satan, uh, all of these things. A couple of things, and I'll close here. Uh, what, what kind of sins should we avoid as we look at this passage? Well, I think one of the most obvious is, is creating our own Jesus. They're creating their own Jesus. You hear me say this all the time, and I stole this from the Shorter Catechism, that we have to receive Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. We're not free to create our own Jesus. They're creating their own political Jesus. We have to receive Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. We have to receive the true Jesus. The, se the second thing is resting in hype and sensation. Resting in hype and sensation. There is a lot of hype and sensation going on right now. Yes, Jesus is driving that. This is on purpose. 
Jesus is going to use this hype and sensation to crucify himself. That's what's going on on this hill. And these um, folks who are caught up in the hype and sensation are not going to be chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel in a few days. They're going to be chanting, crucify him. That's the problem with hype and sensation. And if we're resting in hype and sensation, what happens when the hype and sensation, sensation clears? When it clears, we fall away. But that would be the best thing that could happen is we fall away from the hype and sensation. But with all idols, if our idol is hype and our idol is sensation, no, what's going to happen is if the hype and sensation clears, it's going to pick up again. Only it's going to steer this way or it's going to steer that way. And the disciples of hype and sensation are going to follow it wherever it goes. That's what is going to happen. He or she will follow the hype because the hype uh, is what they're a disciple of. And we have to worry about, and we have to make sure that we're not in it for the hype. No, and the last point is related to it. We've got to rest in the truth. We have to rest our hearts in the truth. Who is the truth? The truth is Christ. I am the way and the truth. Amen? We're resting in a person. We're resting in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord, I think I can see you, and I hope that we can all see you descending down that Mount of Olives, riding upon that donkey, the colt, the foal of that donkey. And here you come as a king of peace, and oh, Lord, may we tremble. May we tremble that, Lord, you chose a donkey and not a war horse. For, O oh Lord, it wouldn't be the Romans to be the only ones in trouble if you had chosen the war horse. But you are merciful, and we see your character. We see your merciful character as you descend down, as you've come to save your enemies. Well, Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus. And we thank you that he is the wonderful King of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.